Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our teaching team. And uh, I didn't get to wish you a happy new year last week, so happy new year. And uh, a lot of you weren't here anyway, so happy new year uh, to those of you that, that weren't here. Um, this is a special day uh, for us as a church that we're not going to make a huge deal of, but I want to celebrate it and, and one other thing and, and just give thanks for it. Uh, is that eight years ago, today was the grand opening of our church. Um, so that's pretty cool. This is our eighth anniversary as a local congregation. Yeah, we can clap for that. We'd had some preview services in the months that led up to it. I think I've shared with you before about when we brought, you know, a hundred dozen donuts. So that all happened to the preview stuff. But the official launch... Uh, was eight years ago this weekend, and so uh, we're going to thank the Lord for that in just a moment. The other thing that I want to uh, pray for is uh, Sun Valley Community Church is another church in our, uh, in our city that loves the Lord, and they're opening a brand new campus in Queen Creek right off Rittenhouse, if you've seen it over by the Boys Ranch there, and uh, today's their grand opening for that, and so I want to take a moment and, and pray for both of those things. So would you uh, pray for me, or pray with me <laughs> and for me, that's fine. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for everything that you've done over these last eight years uh, in our church. And God, we pray that uh, we're still just getting the, the beginnings of what you intend to do, God. But I thank you for the lives that have been changed and the people whose faith has been uh, reinvigorated and formed and deepened. Uh, God, thank you for the communities of people that make up our church, that are your witnesses in every part of the city where you send us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for all that you've done there. And, Father, we pray this morning for uh, Sun Valley, Queen Creek, and for many other churches who are launching today and uh, beginning today. And we pray, God, that uh, you would make that church, as well as all the others that are starting in our community, God, places where people would meet and know and follow you. Uh, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So why did we start eight years ago. And why is Sun Valley starting a new Queen Creek campus? Why is there a church that uh, Redemption is actually help, helping sponsor and give to in Lagos, Nigeria, who started today? It actually was kind of yesterday, if based on the time, but they've already started. Why are there all these churches starting? Why would I even take time to pray for the competition? Here's why, because it's not competition. Amen. And every reason that we started this church and every reason we support new church planting and every reason why we are involved in those things it comes out of everything we're going to see here uh, this year in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is going to take us most of this year. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll just go through a book and, and section and chapter at a time and it uh, should, be, should be really good. Uh, but, but so much of why we started the church and why we support those things, it comes out of the book of Acts in general, but out of this passage in particular. What we're going to see today in this passage is that Jesus provides a new reality, he gives us a new power, and he calls us to a new mission. And all those things are found here right in this passage. Now before we get into that, I, I feel like it's helpful when we dive into a book of the Bible to give you some background on the book. So the book of Acts is actually a sequel. It's a part two to the Gospel of Luke. Now, the Gospel writer Luke wrote both of these. He actually wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. He beats Paul by just a hair uh, because the two books he wrote were really, really long and big. Right? He wrote the Gospel of Luke and then he writes the book of Acts and it's part one and part two, both of which are written to a gentleman named Theophilus. Look at verse one of chapter one. He says, in the first book, 
O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Uh, The the gospel writer Luke here says, uh, Theophilus, you remember the, the book that I wrote to you before. And he says, in that book, I showed you all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is, now I'm going to show you what Jesus continues to do, but through his people. Theophilus is a, is, a, is a name that means friend or beloved by God. It's likely that Theophilus was some sort of wealthy patron who wanted to know more about the Christian story and had commissioned Paul, or not Paul, commissioned Luke to be able to write that. And so uh, Luke really writes Luke and Acts as an investigative journalist. And actually, if you want to see his method, if you want to see why we should not just kind of imagine that this is some sort of random game of, you know, first century telephone written down, but this is actually good, solid, investigative study, we we need to go back to the beginning of what he said at the beginning of his first book in the book of Luke. So in Luke uh, chapter 1, here's what he says. And he gives in here, I've highlighted a number of reasons why we should take this seriously. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So pause there for a second. One of the reasons we should take this seriously is Luke is saying, I'm not the only person that's written this. There's lots of other people. Many have undertaken to compile stories about Jesus. This is not the only place you can read about this. This is widely known. Just as, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So they're eyewitness accounts that Luke's leaning on, right? Luke isn't leaning on a, a kind of, you know, years and years and years ago I heard and my grandpappy told me and his grandpappy told him. And No, these are, Luke has talked to eyewitnesses. He's talked to people who saw and heard Jesus in person before he died and after he rose. He says, uh, continues, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke says, Many people have studied this. He says, I've talked to many eyewitnesses and I have followed it closely for some time past. I've investigated this. I've talked to multiple sources. I've done lots of different research and you can trust the things that I'm putting down in this book. And I think that's important because even as we get to the book of Acts or whether you're reading the book of Luke, you're tempted to kind of go, well, I don't know, can I really trust this? Is this just sort of a story that someone kind of made up in a fiction way? No. It's a story to be sure, but it's a true story written by a a trustworthy investigative journalist. That's the first thing we need to know, just background about the book of Acts. Uh, The next thing we need to know is, is that on one hand, the book of Acts is about something really old really old, right? You see all these new things that happen in the book, and people are looking at this going, what is this new movement? What is this about? And really what it is, it's the long ago promises of God actually being fulfilled. But it looks new, but it's actually old. It reminds me of a game that I bought for my kids a a few years ago, the game Simon. Have you ever seen uh, the game Simon? 
Do you know this game? Right, it lights up and you have to, it's a memory game and you have to hit the buttons in the order that they light up, right? I brought this home from Bed Bath & Beyond a couple years ago for my kids. They were like, this is the greatest new game. I'm like, they had this when I was a kid, yeah. <laughs> right? This thing that you think is so new is really, really old. And it's the same thing that, that Luke is doing here in the book of Acts. He's saying, hey, you think that all this new stuff that's taking place is out of nowhere. And one of the major things he's trying to do in this book is to say, hey, this thing that looks really new is actually really old. This isn't some offshoot of Judaism. This is the fulfillment of Judaism. This is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people from long ago. This thing that looks really new is actually really old. But on the other hand, Acts is in some way about something really new. There's all kinds of new things that happen as a fulfillment of the old promises, uh, but one that is especially notable that, that keeps coming up, and we'll hit on it a bunch because it seems to be a big theme for Luke, is that one of the, reason, one of the things Luke does in this book is he explains why it is that through the church, and only through the church, people who don't normally go together all of a sudden go together. See, the, the good news of the gospel begins in this Jewish small community, and by the end of the book, it is to the ends of the earth. And there are all kinds of nations and peoples and languages and ethnicities that are united around Christ, and that didn't happen anywhere else. See, this is what's so interesting to me. We, we value as a culture, just one of the kind of cultural values that a lot of people appreciate, and I think some of you maybe would even say, I think we take it too far, whatever, but, but we value as a culture today diversity. I would be shocked if there's an elementary school you could go in that doesn't somewhere have a poster or a banner with the word diversity on it, right? And that's a really beautiful thing. That's a really valuable thing. That's a really lovely thing. Here's what you need to know. Nobody valued diversity before Acts. Nobody valued different races, different ethnicities, different languages, different kinds of people coming together. Nobody valued that. It's only through the gospel going and uniting people in those ways, and then Christian culture over the years has sort of left around this value of diversity. But here's what you got to know. It started in Acts. And Luke actually has to kind of write this book in part to defend why it's important. And so that's some of what he's doing. So that's some background about the book. But as I said, we're going to see today a new reality, a new power, and a new mission. And the first thing I want us to look at is the new reality that Jesus talks about. A new reality. Look at verse 4. Jesus is staying with his disciples. He's been resurrected. He's now going to be with them about 40 days. And it says in verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus here is talking about a, a new reality. He's saying, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. Do you see that in verse 4? 
That's why when we sang this song this morning, Waiting Here for You, that's such an appropriate song. Jesus is saying, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. The Father had promised long ago something. He'd promised the Holy Spirit. And then uh, Jesus references Luke 3.16. Now, a lot of us know John 3.16. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but my guess is if I said, hey, uh, who in here thinks they could recite for me John 3.16? My guess is a number of you at least multiple people from each section could do it. Is there anyone that thinks they can recite Luke 3.16? Looking. My guess is no. And yet, here's the thing. In the book of Acts, Luke 3.16 is one of the most important verses. Uh, my kids were kind of, we were talking about this new series last night, and I said, can I tell you the most important verse in the book of Acts? And they said, Yeah. And I said, it's Luke 3.16. <laughs> they said, well, that's not in the book of Acts. <laughs> I said, no, but it's written by the same guy. And Luke references Luke 3.16 three times in the book of Acts. Why? Because Luke 3.16 was a prediction of a new reality that now Jesus is bringing to be fulfilled. Here's what it says, and we actually have to back up to Luke 3.15 to understand the context. In Luke 3, uh, John the Baptist, who is this forerunner for Jesus, he's been, preaching a God, uh, he's been preaching repentance, he's been telling people to turn around, turn away from their sins, and, and look toward the Messiah that's coming. And here's what it says in Luke 3.15. It says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So, people are looking at John the Baptist. They're going, wow, this is special. Wow, this is unique. Wow, I've never seen anything like that. Is he the Christ? And remember, Christ isn't a last name. It's a title. Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one. It was this promised figure that the Jews had been anticipating for centuries. And they're looking at John the Baptist going, is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? And here's John's answer in Luke 3.16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, so get the logic of this verse, right? John, are you the Messiah? I baptize with water. He'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. And the crowd goes, got it. Because here's what the crowd knew. Based on Isaiah 32 and Ezekiel 36 and Joel 2 and a number of other prophecies in the Old Testament, the crowd knew that the sign of the Messiah coming was the Holy Spirit coming. You can look in Isaiah 32, Ezekiel 36, Joel 2. You can read those and you can see that the, when the Spirit comes, that means the kingdom's here. When the Spirit comes, that means the Messiah is here. And so John goes, hey, I'm not the Messiah, you'll know when the Holy Spirit comes that he's here. And that's, look back to Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 5, that's what Jesus references here. He says, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Which is why they go, oh. See, here's what you got to understand is, is some of the Jewish expectation of how the kingdom of God worked. All right, every Jew understood that uh, because of Adam and Eve's sin, they lived in an old age. 
And, and you could kind of picture this with one circle. It's old age, the age of sin and death and evil and Satan. By the way, I don't mean here like old people. That's not what I'm saying. We live in an old age, in an old era, an old era of sin and death and evil and Satan. And there was this hope that the Jews had, this hope that a new day would come, an, a, a, an age to come, a new era would break into history where people would acknowledge God and there would be love and joy and justice, right? They had this idea. We live in this sinful, fallen, broken world, but the day's coming when God's going to make all things new. Now, in the mind of the Jews, what was the thing that would initiate that new kingdom? It was the coming of the Messiah. So get this, right? John the Baptist goes, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. You'll know when the Holy Spirit comes. Because all the prophets have said when the Holy Spirit comes, that's the Messiah. Jesus now says, hey, John baptized with water. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, which is why they ask in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're going, Jesus, we're tracking with you. This is great. You've come, and that's going to be evidenced by you giving us the Holy Spirit. You're clearly the Messiah, not to mention that we all saw you rise from the dead. So is this the point? Are we going now from the old age to the age to come? Do you see Jesus' answer? Verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, Jesus says, I'm not telling. (laughs) Is now the time? I'm not telling. But I have something for you to do, and that's what he's going to flesh out in verse 8. And so what Jesus introduces here, and it's not fleshed out in this passage, but as people have thought through this, what we've realized is that this Jewish expectation has actually uh, been fulfilled by Jesus a little differently than we think. Rather than it being this very clean, uh, there's the old age and the age to come, the reality is that the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, and the sending and the resurrection of Jesus and the sending of his Holy Spirit has initiated the age to come, but now they overlap. Now, we live in this time in between, where we still are surrounded by evil, death, sin. The world is still under the influence of Satan. And yet, for those who are followers of Christ, who have trusted in his death and resurrection, who have been filled by his promised Holy Spirit, we also, at the very same time, experience a taste of the age to come. And so we're in this place that theologians often refer to as the already not yet is the kingdom here it's already here but not yet totally and so we're in this in-between time and we anticipate the second coming that's marked by that second arrow when Jesus will return and usher in in fullness uh, all of that in the age of uh, sin and evil and Satan and death will be no more So that's just kind of a new reality that Jesus explains here. Now, it's interesting to me, in light of their question in verse 6, because their question is, is this the time? Are you going to do it now? Is is now the time? (laughs) Christians have never stopped asking that question. Is now the time? Is now the time? 
And it's fascinating to me because Jesus goes on to say, hey, I'm not telling. And in the meantime, here's some work I have for you to do. Here's a mission I have for you to do. Here's a, here's a new power that I'm going to give you to be able to do that mission. But it, it, I was just kind of thinking, what are some ways that Jesus could have answered their question? Jesus, is now the time the kingdom's going to be here? Jesus could have said, well, guys, let me tell you exactly how this is going to play out. First, it's going to be this, and then there's going to be this, and then there's going to be this government, and there's going to be this, and you just, just watch all the stuff, and here's exactly how it's going to happen. Did he do that? No. And a lot of people are more focused on the times and seasons that God is fixed by his own authority than they are on the mission that Jesus called us to live. So that's one way Jesus could have answered, and he didn't. Another way, they could have said, Jesus, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? He could have said, guys, what a stupid question. Why do you want the kingdom to be restored anyway? Don't you know this is just all about individual people getting saved from their sin and going to heaven? Who cares about heaven coming to earth and a new kingdom? That's not what this is about. Just get out of here and go to heaven. But he didn't say that. Why? Because that's not the true story of the world. That's not the gospel. The good news isn't that we just die and are are forgiven of our sins and die and go to heaven. The the good news is that the kingdom is going to come back. He doesn't rebuke them for wanting the kingdom to return. He just doesn't explain when it will happen. Notice, he also doesn't say this. Jesus, is this the time that the kingdom is going to happen? Jesus doesn't say no, but you guys are the ones that are going to usher it in. If you just do all the right stuff and if you're just faithful to every little thing that I tell you, then you will bring the kingdom of God about. He doesn't say that. And finally, he doesn't say, when they ask, Jesus, is now the time? He doesn't say, guys, it's not right now, but it's going to happen. And you know what? In the meantime, just go back to your normal life. Don't think about it. You know, all this stuff that I've done, you know, I got it, I got it. There's no role for you to play. Just go do your normal thing. He doesn't say that either. Why? Because Jesus says, I'm not telling, it's not for you to know, the kingdom is going to come back, but in the meantime, here's what I have for you to do. In the meantime, here is your calling. And Jesus first tells us that that calling is going to require a new power, right? So he's explained a new reality, and now he says you need a new power. Look at verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. The word power, here's a definition of it. It is the potential potential for functioning in some way, the might, the strength, the force, the capability, the enablement. Right, a lot of times people will say, oh, I just need strength. Just pray that I would get strength. Do you know what they're praying for? They're praying for power. When, when, when you can't do something, it's because you lack the power. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the power. Now, um, I don't know how you would answer this question. I'm not going to put any of you on the spot. But my guess is if you've got a, kind of 100 American Christians together, and you ask them the question, what is the gospel? What, how do they answer? What is the gospel? My guess is the majority of those hundred average Christians would say this. 
Jesus died for your sins. Okay, true or false, class? Jesus died for your sins. True. But, but, but this verse makes us respond to that answer. What's the gospel? Jesus died for your sins. It makes us go, is that it? That's all? Right now, no, don't get me wrong. Right? We are sinful before a holy God. We have rebelled against him. We have ignored him. We have dishonored him. We have tried to live on the throne of our own lives. Our sins are are enormous before God. We have no hope at all apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ by the shed blood that he offered on the cross. Amen? There's no other hope than that. But there's more. There's more to the gospel. There's more to what Jesus does for us than just forgive our sins. One of the huge benefits in uh, being part of redemption, and redemption is one church, 10 congregations across the state, is particularly when we get to go through a book like this, uh, we kind of go, okay, we're going to spend 2017, most of it, through the book of Acts. How could we prepare ourselves? And so one of the things that we decided to do uh, was to extend an invitation to a guy named Daryl Bach. Uh, Daryl Bach is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. None of you have ever heard of him, and that's fine. But he has uh, written the best commentary on the book of Acts. He's probably the best living scholar on the book of Acts. And so we said, hey, would you come in December and would you do a day training all of our teaching pastors and other pastors? Some of you as as volunteer uh, redemption community leaders were there. A number of you were there. We had probably 60 people in the room, all learning from one of the world's best guys in the book of Acts. I mean, it's such a cool opportunity. So you're going to hear me quote Daryl Bach a lot through this series. And here's something that he said on that day. He said, the gospel doesn't just provide forgiveness, but also gives the power to live in the kingdom. Yes, we need forgiveness. We have no hope to honor God, to be cleansed before God without the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And yet, we have no hope to really love God with all of our hearts the way Jesus commands us, to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have no hope for that without new power. So the gospel isn't just that we have our sins forgiven, it's also that in the Holy Spirit we are given a new power. Don't you need power? Why do you keep getting so angry and frustrated at your kids or at your grandkids? Or at those kids in the neighborhood. Why? You know you, you, know you shouldn't. You, you know it's not right. But you can't seem to stop. Why do you lack so much self-control? Where you know, I really shouldn't do that. I shouldn't eat that. I shouldn't drink that. that's that prescription medication. I'm not technically on it anymore, but I really need it. Why do you lack that self-control? Is it because you know you don't don't have enough information? No, it's because you don't have the power. Why do you keep indulging those thoughts that you know are shameful? And you know that if you actually acted on them, it would ruin your life. And yet, There's these moments where you just kind of find some comfort in your own private moments, thinking them, indulging them, letting your mind wander. What if? You know that that's bad for you. You know it would ruin your life. 
Why are you so afraid of people's opinions? Why are you so afraid of what others think and what others say and how others look at you? Is it because you don't know that, hey, their opinion doesn't matter, only God's matters? No, you know that. See, here's the thing. Our issue is often not a lack of information. It's a lack of power. We know the right thing to do. If someone else came to us and said, here's my situation, what would you do? We would give incredible advice. But we need power. Why can't we turn it around? Why can't we make a switch? Why can't we go in a new direction? Because we lack power. I read about how in 2012, Hurricane Isaac, which was a very big hurricane, I don't know if it was quite as big as Katrina, but same part of the country. Hurricane Isaac, the winds were blowing so strong that for a 24-hour period, the Mississippi River, which normally runs down into the Gulf, ran the other direction, twice as fast as it normally runs for 24 hours. Why? Because the wind, the power of the wind was so strong. Do you know what will help your life turn around, not just for 24 hours, but forever? It's the wind of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit coming in and allowing you to do what you otherwise could not do. And Jesus says, that's what I'm going to give you. Jesus says, you will receive power. When? When you get this lesson? When you discover this new information? When you have Someone tell you it a different way? No. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Has the Holy Spirit come upon you? Listen, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have trusted in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And if you're saying, well, gosh, I don't feel that powerful. I don't feel like I'm that different. I don't feel like, I I feel like I'm just like everybody else. Then you've got to ask one of two questions. Either, is it possible that you actually aren't a Christian? Or, have you just so relied on your own flesh rather than relying on the Holy Spirit that God has given you that you have quenched him, that you have silenced him, that you have allowed his influence to be so small that you're just living out almost as though you weren't a Christian ever. Either way, the opportunity here is to repent. The opportunity here is to say, yes, Lord, I need that power. Yes, Lord, I I don't just want some minor transformation and I don't just need more information. I need power. Give me your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Change me by your spirit. There's a new power that's available. That's why we planted this church. That's why Sun Valley is planting a church in Queen Creek. That's why we're doing this, because people everywhere need the power of God. They need the forgiveness of God to be sure, but they also need the power of God to live in that new kingdom reality. And when we're filled with that power, finally Jesus tells us we're going to have a new mission. We're going to have a new mission Notice that the question the guys had asked in verse 6 was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they were thinking in this very kind of a monocultural way. 
We're going to experience the kingdom of God, and then the Gentiles will somehow get a taste of it. And, and Jewish scholars debated what would be the Gentiles' experience of that. Would they experience the kingdom of God coming as judgment on them or as grace on them? Jesus doesn't get into all that, but Jesus says, hey, you're focused on this one little small thing. Let me tell you the mission you have. You have a mission to be my witnesses. But you will receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, you will save other people. Jesus doesn't say, you will usher in the kingdom. Jesus says, you will be witnesses to the kingdom. What's a witness? A witness is someone who says, I'm just testifying as to what I've seen and heard. I, don't, I, I can't save anyone. I can't change anyone. I sure as heck can't change the world and can't change the culture, but I can testify about the one who can. And that's the mission that Jesus gives his disciples and by extension us, is we are called to be his witnesses. We are called to, in our lives and with our words, testify that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Lord not just on Sundays and not just in this room, but Jesus is Lord over all of life, that there is not one square inch of the universe that God doesn't say, it's mine. And we testify to that with our actions and with our deeds, with our service and with our sacrifice. We are witnesses. And this witnessing is to go all over the world. Notice what it says there. You will be my witnesses, kind of first circle, in Jerusalem. That's where they already were. You're going to be my witnesses close by. He says, you'll be my witnesses also in all Judea and Samaria. That's the next rung out. Judea was kind of the region that Jerusalem was part of, and Samaria was a nearby area that was very culturally different, and even lots of enemies of the people of Israel lived in Samaria. He says, you'll be my witnesses not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. And then, he says, to the ends of the earth. And that's just always, I just sort of crack up in my mind when I imagine this, right? Jesus has got his, his, uh, it's just 11 guys at this point together. Hey guys, I'm going to give you new power and you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. earth, earth, earth. And they're like looking around. Us? <laughs> yeah. Why? Because he's going to give them a new power. Now, that idea of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth, that's important for a couple reasons. One is it kind of forms the outline of the book. Actually, chapters 1 through 7 are all about the kingdom work in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 are all about the kingdom work in Judea and Samaria. Chapters 13 to 28 are all about the kingdom work in the ends of the earth. So that's important kind of from a literary perspective. But it also shows us the heart of God. The heart of God is not just for one monolithic group. The heart of God is not for just one people of one language and one skin color and one background. The heart of God is for the nations. The heart of God is for the world. I've, I've prayed a prayer for a long time over my kids. It comes from Numbers 6, and a lot of you are familiar with this. It's a, it's a great kind of benediction, a great prayer. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and give you peace. I love that prayer, and I pray that over my kids. As soon as they're born, I pray it over them in the hospital room. And just a few months ago, 
I came across a variation of it that I've started to pray instead because I like it better. And it's in Psalm 67. Here's what it says in Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. So now I pray that for my kids. I don't want God's face to shine upon them just so they have a great life. I want God's face to shine upon them. I want God to bless them so that he might use them to spread his name across the nations so that they would be a a, a bold and a courageous and a tough witness for the gospel. And I don't know what that will look like and I don't know if God will answer that prayer. But that's my prayer because that's the heart of God. Get this, this is so important. The church doesn't have a mission the church is a mission. Do you get that from this? Right? It's very easy today in our world with so many churches to go, okay, well, there's the Sunday services, and there's small groups, and there's uh, classes, and there's missions. So it's just a department. Yeah, we, we have a missions thing. Now, we often ha- do that to try to, like, you know, make sure we're focusing on the ends of the earth in some ways. But we have to understand the whole thing is part of the mission. Right? Some of you are here today and you do not consider yourself a follower of Christ and we are so glad that you're here because you are getting to hear me and hopefully the person you talk to before and after and you're hearing it through the songs, you'll see it through communion. You are hearing us witness to you, testify to you that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus died, that Jesus will forgive you and that Jesus will give you a new power if you trust him. So this moment is mission. Your small group is mission. Because there are some people who will never come with you to church on Sunday, but if you invited them to your small group, hey, this group of folks and I, we're having dinner and we're hanging out, would you come? They'd love to come to that, and that's mission. And for all of us who are Christians, when we're gathered on Sundays or gathered in groups, those moments are preparing us and equipping us and strengthening us to go out into the world and to be God's witnesses. So the church doesn't, the, the church doesn't have a mission. The church is a mission. And we're called to be God's witnesses, close and near and far. We're called to be God's witnesses where we live and work and study and play. We're called to be God's witnesses the way we do it in the near area is we do stuff in Juarez. I got something so cool to share with you. We told you on Christmas Eve... We said, hey, part of this year's Christmas offering is going to go to foster care and adoption. Part of it's going to go to this ministry in Juarez. And uh, we would love uh, to, to be able to help them because th- these partners, normally we go down to help build houses, but one of these partner churches actually is building a church and they want us to help uh, construct the church. And we said, you know, we're not going to make a big push for the Christmas offering because we've asked you all for a lot of money already. And you know what? You all gave so much money anyway that week that we thought, well, maybe we'll be able to help give them a little bit of money to pay for the land that they're buying because they're trying to buy land and build something on it. Now, Juarez is a little cheaper than here. <laughs> so our, our dollar goes further, okay? But you all gave so much money that we're actually able to buy all their land and to pay for all the construction and to probably even buy some chairs to put in the building if they want that. So congratulations. So, so you're going to help build two churches. Just this one will happen this year, and then ours will happen someday uh, at another time. 
But I just think that is so cool. Why, and, and why would we do that? I mean, that just seems crazy. Because we're called to be God's witnesses. And that church is going to bear witness to Jesus in a way that we can't. And we're called to the end of the earth, to Turkey, to Lagos, Nigeria. So we support those things. And so many of you do other missions things just on your own that aren't connected to any official church thing. And you have partners and you have relationships and you have things that you do. And you should just do the heck out of those. Why? Because that's what the church is called to. We've been invited into a new reality. The kingdom of God really has come. We've been given a new power, the Holy Spirit, that changes and transforms and renews us, and that strengthens and empowers us for a new mission to bear witness to Jesus. Everywhere we live, work, study, and play. Let's pray.